Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Zhoja. I'm with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington University, and I'm joined by... Giselle Donnelly. I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and also... Dalibur Rohach, also a senior fellow at AEI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Today, we are thrilled to be joined in a special edition episode by Roya Hakakian, one of um, my, if not my number one um, favorite voice on what is happening in Iran right now. She's a writer, and she's also now a senior fellow and board member with American Purpose. We are thrilled to host her today. And if you enjoy this episode, as per usual, please consider subscribing, rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Roya, thank you for joining us. And I'm thinking of starting broad. Um, it is almost futile to say that now Iran is um, a direct uh, part in this um, conflict on the Eastern Front that we have been discussing on this podcast from all possible angles. Um, but there's also a lot happening in Iran inside in parallel to that. And I think we should start here because I think we can learn from you lessons learned and also what is happening in terms of the movement and how this is relevant to the broader Western world that we're looking at. And perhaps I can start off with kind of the, that you speak to very eloquently, the, I would call it fatalism or defeatism when it comes to responding to what is happening inside Iran that we see in Washington and in other Western capitals with the argument that this has happened before. We've seen movements before periodically over the last few decades And um, this is nothing special, and we don't have the ties and the instruments to address that in a way or another. And I think you are on the um, radical other side of arguing that this is different from previous movements that we've seen in Iran, that this is wider It goes deeper, and it speaks to much more than just um, strict economic aspects or one strict aspect of human rights, um, that it is um, about values and speaks to us in the West in terms of how we should be addressing it more forcefully and more decisively. So would you give us your broad view um, to start this conversation in terms of How are these movements that we're seeing now different? Is it a revolution or not? I'm delighted to be with you and, and you guys um, are my kindred. So it's, uh, it's a wonderful thing to be in conversation be and I hope it goes on because uh, I think uh, Iran ought to be considered part of the Eastern Front and I'm hoping that this conversation can jumpstart that, uh, that movement or idea. First of all, you, you said that what I argue is, is a radical opinion, and I want to say actually it isn't. I think my point of view is, is incredibly pragmatic and, and very, very not radical, you know, uh, and I'll say why. I think one of the facts that I keep bringing up in the process of talking about Iran is that for the past 20 years, The U.S. State Department and other major institutions in, in the U.S. government have been funding 
the cause of democracy promotion inside Iran. We have been allocating funds to, you know, get activists to uh, learn about what democracy really means and what it means to uh, have a civil society and what it means to be a citizen and what it means to live under the rule of law. I know for a fact that this has also been the case with Ukraine, that, that certain youth institutions have been investing for the past 15, 20 years in the cause of promoting democracy in Ukraine. So uh, the reason I think this is pragmatic to try to help these activists inside both Ukraine and Iran is that this is what the U.S. has been investing in. We have been telling these activists uh, what the gifts of democracy uh, are all about and why democracy is an idea that ought to be embraced as a universal idea and not a, a simply a Western or American idea. And, and so if we have invested, if we have spent 20 years uh, talking about this, if we have uh, given it money, if we have engaged all of these people on the ground, then uh, the next pragmatic step in the process is to help them get to the next stage. Otherwise, everything that we have done will have been wasted. And, and I think it's also a huge statement about what America is and, and how reliable uh, America can be in terms of its, uh, the investments that it makes and, and the promises that it makes. I think that's where Iran is at the moment. I think what I see as a profoundly different uh, turn of events in this round of demonstrations is that it is about the very, very fundamental underlying uh, foundation that every democracy, every good democracy ought to be built upon. There's a song I'm not sure you have heard, but it's a song that uh, one Iranian singer compiled of all the uh, dreams that people have for the future of this movement, in other words, for the future that they're trying to build. And if you listen to these hopes, uh, they're, they're painting a democracy. The song goes, we are, we are coming out onto the street, we are demonstrating for a life without fear. We're demonstrating for the ability to walk on the street hand in hand, woman and man, without being uh, afraid. This is a movement for uh, a better education, you know, better quality of life. So it takes very tangible aspects of day-to-day uh, -day life. That's about, you know, being free to dance and sing and do all these things that people can't do in Iran. But it's also about the fundamental things, which is better education, you know, a, a more reliable future, you know, a better environment and so on and so forth. And, and it's these ideas that, in my view, are being articulated for the very first time in a demonstration that I have never seen in the past 40 years. You know, the biggest demonstrations of this kind that we've had was in 2009 in Iran, after the rigged elections of presidential elections of 2009. And people came to the streets and they kept saying, where is my vote? Which fundamentally meant that the people still had faith in the system to rectify the rigged election, to rectify what had gone wrong. 
And and what's very uh, moving about this round is that there is no conversation. People are not turning to the current authorities to say, can you please fix this? Or uh, can you please respond to our demands? They're simply saying the dictator must go. If I can stay on this just um, just a little bit longer and ask a question that I think is on many people's minds, at least I have been trying a lot to make sense of it, and that is what is exactly in these movements and these demands in the end the role of women. We've seen the images and we portray it as such as a movement of women, particularly here in the West. And women are arguably growing in importance, um, not just in Iran, but across um, these conflicts. Um, I myself wrote a short piece recently about um, the role of European women in supporting Ukraine. But Back to Iran, we have limited access to information, of course. So I'm wondering, to what extent do you give the responsibility and the leadership in this, um, in these movements to women? How central are they to the movement and to the demands? And what what is the specific role of women's rights in, in how it fits into the broader movement, if that makes sense? Sure. Yes, it does. Um, I think the women and the cause of women sparked the movement, but the movement currently isn't limited to women. And I think it had to start with women because when the revolution in 1979 devolved, Devolved meaning it took all the steps back and forgot that its primary uh, commitment was to move toward a democracy was over the issue of women. It, it all began there. And so I think it's a very natural uh, return to the issue of women 43 years later for this new generation to recognize that everything went wrong in 1979 when the men in the country, and, and, and even some women, turned their backs on the women's rights. And, and that's how we knew the writing was on the wall. That's how we knew um, that, that this revolution wasn't going to uh, take us to a democracy because uh, it began with taking the rights of women away. And we didn't speak up. So what happened in, in 1979 uh, was that as soon as Ayatollah Khomeini, the founder of the current uh, republic, Islamic Republic in Iran, came to power in the middle of February, within about 10 days, one of the very first things that he started talking about was to institute the mandatory dress code, the hijab that currently women in Iran must wear. You know, at the time, he was both feared and beloved. So, you know, the overwhelming majority of, of his own followers and constituency really loved him. Um, so they didn't speak against him. And those who didn't love him uh, feared him so much that they didn't speak against him. So to think that 10 days after he had returned to the country and after the revolution had become successful, there is a demonstration in Iran against what he had proposed, which was the bringing back of the mandatory dress code and in reintroducing it to the you know public uh, in Iran 
is an outstanding idea. I mean, who could possibly imagine that at that time there would be a, a demonstration, a protest against him? There was, and it was the women. Women took to the streets and, and marched and said, we didn't bring about a revolution to go backwards. And that was one of the main slogans. Uh, we didn't uh, make all this. We didn't take all this effort just to go backwards. And that's precisely what happened. So, but in 1979, and, and the, this major march was on March 8th of uh, 1979. So it's, it's barely even three weeks since the success of the revolution. This march it is a very historic moment when, A, we knew that the rights of women were being compromised, that the Ayatollah was actually targeting women and, and trying to, even in that early stage of the revolution, uh, trying to uh, begin to bring back these severely limiting is Islamic values uh, and reintroduce them to the society. It would have been a great moment for everyone else to say, oh, no, you know, we can't do that. You know, we, we, we want to build democracy. But of course, um, the overwhelming majority, not only of his own followers, but even secular intellectuals and leftist intellectuals in Iran said that, that the needs of the women can wait, that the taking care of the revolution took precedence over everything else. And that the women should make the dress code a second priority and make the success of the revolution a first priority, which in essence was, was inviting women to shut up and abide, right? Hard to refuse. <laughs> I mean, come on. It's, it's a, it's a, I, I was 12 and, and I remember watching this, uh, the women march on the streets. And I remember thinking, gosh, they look like me. They look like people I know. But why is everybody uh, lashing out against them so violently? And, and you know, I was, I was kind of at odds uh, within my own head uh, with myself, because on one hand, I was hearing, oh, you know, these women are so selfish. They can't they, you know, why can't they just put on this hijab and let us be one united nation at this moment, at this critical moment? And and on the other hand, I was thinking, but you know, they 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 they're so harmless and and so like the rest of us. So why are we picking on them? So all this is to say that Iran forgot that the women were the first that that taking away the rights of women was the first step to, toward taking away the rights of everybody else, that the women were the first sacrifice at the altar of the revolution and everybody else was going to follow. And therefore, I think it is the best way that the society can look back upon the errors of its previous generation and say, aha, that's where they went wrong. If we want to truly fundamentally correct what they had done wrong, we need to begin with women. And I think that's why the current movement has its, its birthplace, its origin, uh, and its primary emphasis on the equality for women. And then everything else follows from there. Um, so I think it's, a, it's really uh, the, the most meaningful way 
that this new generation could possibly show that it isn't the 1979 generation and that's it, that it understands what it means to be to build an egalitarian society and to want equality for all citizens. What I hear you saying, and I'm hardly an Iran expert, so please correct me if I'm wrong, is that the, the, the current movement is not a narrowly political one, but one that's concerned with society and culture at large. Um, so I'd be interested to know whether you think that's a, a correct oversimplification. Um, but it is also one that resonates very strongly um, in U- Ukraine as well. Of course, it's about Ukrainian sovereignty. Of course, it's about uh, Russian atrocity and oppression and domination and so on and so forth. But uh, as Dalibor and Yulia have uh, constantly emphasized on this program, it's also about the desire to overthrow the, the whole structures of illiberality that have previously marked life in Ukraine, not just because of Russian domination, but even those elements in Ukrainian society itself. So before I go any farther out on this limb, please saw it off or or give me some support so I don't fall. <laughs> I give you all the support in the world. It's not an oversimplification. It's actually a, a beautiful distillation of what's going on. And I agree with everything you said. First of all, let me say one thing. I thought obviously wrongly, when the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan, that the hope of any movement in Iran had been dashed, that that it was impossible for anyone in Iran to think that, you know, that the rise of the Taliban and, and the departure of the United States, the only hope for a democratic foothold in the region, would not mean anything other than and there's no way we can overthrow the current regime. So the only reason I think that people have risen up to do what they're doing is in fact Ukraine. I think Ukraine, you know, the fact that people without ordinary people who had no military training who were, you know, who, who were so much smaller, who had such a smaller army, who had no nuclear weapons, who had not uh, fought in a war, you know, as much as, or, or as recently as the adversary. If they can rise up to fight with such a formidable enemy, why can't they? So I think, you know, maybe researchers would, you know, look into this and find all the proper data to back up what I'm saying, because what I'm saying is primarily based on instinct and observation. But I am nearly 100% sure that it is what the Ukrainians did that made the Iranians feel that it was possible to follow in their footsteps. So I think they made the dream possible. I think if you listen to so much of what what is being said about Iran right now. Oh, you know, they've done this before, but it never goes anywhere. Or, you know, they are a bunch of empty-handed people uh, against a formidable army. How can they, or and a formidable uh, revolutionary guard corps. 
how can they possibly win? This is, you know, they're no, they're no match for uh, what they're trying to rise up against. So they have no hope. And I remember exactly in the first four or five weeks of the beginning of the war um, between, you know, war and invasion of uh, Ukraine, that this is precisely what everybody was saying about, you know, Ukrainians. Oh, it's so exciting to watch these lovely people do this valiant thing, but obviously it's not going to go anywhere. Inevitably they'll be crushed. Well, yeah. you know, um, yeah. So I think, <laughs> I think Iranians are where the Ukrainians were in in the end of middle of March or end of February of 2022, trying to tell through their persistence to the international community that we mean business and come to our side. And and I uh, don't know how we exactly get over that hump hump of disbelief, international disbelief, or um, you know that that moment where they go from thinking. You know that these people are uh, are lovely and valorous, but they can't but lose. Over to the other side, where they say, you know, these are Goliaths who can indeed uh, bring down the the adversary. Um, I mean, I'm sorry, the opposite. Obviously, these are the Davids who are going to bring down the Goliaths. So I think that's we're at that threshold where everybody is disbelieving and people have persisted long enough to hopefully win them over. I think it's quite wonderful that we have an actual poet on the podcast because I suspect that poets who mixes her metaphors might have a, <laughs> a deeper understanding of the human condition than, than some social scientists. And I, you know, count myself in that, in that letter, letter camp, uh, Particularly when it comes to the appreciation of, of 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 the sort of subtlety and, and nonlinear nature, if you will, with which ideas operate in 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 human history, and 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 the fact that human affairs are not a matter of pushing a button that then produces a desired effect, but that there are these you know long and variable lags in which you know Maidan, a revolution in Ukraine, inspires people elsewhere around the globe. Maybe not immediately, maybe not in a perfectly predictable way, but 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 uh, but I think it, it sort of drives home the point that I mean the cause of human freedom around the world uh, is is sort of connected. You know whether you are living in Iran or Ukraine or or or, or, or Russia and elsewhere, and I think that insight should also inform foreign policy choices, including in the United States. So I wonder if we could maybe uh, move this conversation to a sort of more granular level. Uh, and, and, and talk a little bit about what the West and the United States can do to promote the cause of liberty, both in Iran and and in places like Ukraine. And, and, and just to be very specific, uh, you know, we now know that you have uh, Iranian military personnel, which is operating out of Crimea, helping out with the drone strikes that the Russians are conducting mm -hmm. in Ukraine. Uh, the European Union has agreed on sanctions on representatives of the Iranian regime that are responsible for for this and for providing Russia with with drones we also know that you know, the United States imposes all manners of sanctions on, on 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 Iranian entities you know i wonder what the west should be doing more at this point and where is 
you know the sort of source of leverage that you see that the West might have over the over the Iranian regime, and uh, and, and you know what, what what should really the Biden administration be doing at this point? First of all, I think we have to return to the fundamental ideas of communism and say, okay, we don't want to, to live in a communist world, but what were the great ideas in communism that we shouldn't have thrown away with the rest of it, with the rest of the ideology. And I think one of the things that we will probably uh, salvage from that heap of trash that we threw out, hopefully, or at least somewhat, um, is the notion of universalism, is the idea that our, our destinies are interconnected, that, you know, we can't have um, you know, a healthy democracy in America, if democracy everywhere else is waning or is under attack, that in order for us to um, continue to hang on to our values, we have to enable nations who are aspiring to these values elsewhere gain them or else ours will be weakened too. I think, unfortunately, this is what Ayatollah Khamenei and Vladimir Putin understand about, you know, their evil kingdoms. They understand that they need to have each other's back if they're going to survive. But I'm not sure that the rest of us recognize that, you know, these problems need to be addressed in the way that we address the issues of environment and the issues of disease that we band together in order to try to find out what to do about climate change. We band together when we recognize that we can't subdue uh, COVID. But, you know, when a nation rises for democratic values, we say, oh, you know, they, they are independent, we can intervene. Well, you know, <laughs> it, why does it apply to everything else but, you know, democratic values? I mean, what, what is exactly uh, making this one different from, from the others? And why do we think that without them succeeding, we can possibly succeed where we are. So I, I, I think um, we need to inject some universalism into our debates. Um, and, and I think that's really essential. Um, the first and fundamental step that the United States needs to take is to recognize that um, it needs a plan B for dealing with Iran. The current administration for the past several years, I mean, if we kind of look at the Trump administration as some kind of a glitch <laughs> in terms of the foreign policy towards Iran and, and look at, you know, the Obama years and now look at the Biden years, um, the, the fundamental plan to deal with Iran has been to get Iran to come to the negotiating table and sign this nuclear agreement. The problem is that at the moment, the, uh, the administration, or at least up until now, the administration's fundamental effort has been focused on trying to bring Iran to the negotiation table. So to now uh, tell them, people, that was yesterday's plan, the facts on the streets, the reality on the ground, has profoundly shifted, and you need to come up with a plan B. I don't think the administration was thinking about it, 
And I don't think the administration is intellectually agile enough to readjust. So I think there is a huge deal of resistance on their part to keep returning to what they had been working on for 10, 15 years. So I think that's that's the first thing that needs to get fixed. And then the second thing is to, A, look at what Iran do, is doing um, in Ukraine, you know, providing drones and, you know, other weapons and also uh, training. The, you know, some of the most elite members of the Iran Revolutionary Guard Corps have traveled to Ukraine, to Russia, to train uh, Russians in the use of the weaponry that they have been supplying. Then the next thing is to really think about, you know, since this isn't what's going on in Iran isn't uh, an actual war, military war, it, it's a matter of trying to think about how we can potentially address the weaknesses that the demonstrators obviously have in fighting against you know, their adversary. And I think um, part of what, uh, a big part of what they're suffering from is a disadvantage, a digital disadvantage. The regime constantly controls the internet. It shuts the, shuts the internet down, which is both terrifying and debilitating. And then the next thing is that there, we know that there are programs and, uh, and you know, devices that they introduce to, I shouldn't say devices, but but there are some ghost programs that are operating uh, that they uh, introduce to uh, the cell phones and other uh, means of communication between the activists um, through which they conduct surveillance on the activists. So all of their cell phones uh, can constantly be surveilled. All of the information can constantly be watched and, and used. That's terrifying to think that every activist is using a cell phone that the Ministry of Intelligence uh, and and other authorities in Iran have access to. So I think these should be, in this day and age, advantages that we ought to be able to provide the activists on the ground. And I think these are some primary steps that can be taken that can make a major difference. Whereas Elon, with his Starlink giveaways, you know, he needs to (laughs) revive his reputation uh, for the cause of liberty somehow. I know we're running short of time, but I'd like to squeeze one question in, if I may, that's occurred to me, especially from your uh, your last comments. You know, it does seem to me that the United States has been always like five years behind events uh-huh. <laughs> ever since the end of the Cold War. I mean, it has gone both ways. For a long time, we overestimated our power and underestimated the strength of our adversaries. And nowadays, it seems like we underestimate our own power and uh, over overestimate our adversaries. So I'm wondering, it, and and if anything has proven that that we're behind the curve, it's been the Ukrainian conflict. So I'm wondering if we're kind of in a similar situation in regard to the Iranian regime. You know, like the Russians, you could say that they're imperially overstretched. They've got a lot of, uh, you know, they're in Syria and Iraq and Yemen and Lebanon and, you know, uh, you know, for, for a fundamentally 
resource week regime, they, they've got a lot of concerns. So I'm wondering if there's a possibility of sort of um, overstretch that leads to a collapse. And if there's something in that uh, for American policy and strategy, if we were a little bit more clever about it, just trying to mm-hmm. persist in exhausting the regime mm-hmm. where the cost is low. But again, it, it just puts more pressure on, and particularly at a moment, you know, when Hamane may not be long for the world. Right, right, exactly. Um, I think you're right. I think we we are behind the curve. And, and in the specific case of Iran, I think there are two disadvantages that Iran has that perhaps uh, Ukraine didn't have. One is that I am not sure, and, and that's because I am, like you, uh, not, not being an Iran expert, I am not a Russia or Ukraine expert, and I don't know what the politics of uh, Russia and Ukraine vis-a-vis Washington uh, was exactly prior to the war. But I can tell you that Iran quietly, uh, the regime of Iran quietly has been for the past 15, 20 years trying to turn the public opinion, American public opinion, um, in favor of itself. And, and that has been a subterranean effort that has gone on for nearly 20 years and successfully so. So, um, so you know, the overwhelming majority of educated uh, Americans who <clears throat> are watching the Middle East and watching Iran uh, end up repeating precisely the sound bites that come out of Tehran. You know, it's been, oh, you know, if we only choose a democratic president in America who can, um, you know, then bolster the reformists in Iran, everything will be fine. You know, and, you know, and forgetting that, you know, since 1997, Iran has had equal numbers. Those who have held power in Iran have uh, been in equal numbers uh, hardline and and reformist presidents, and neither one managed to do a single thing to can't tell the difference, right? Create a reform, right, right. So, so uh, what I'm trying to say is that you know they uh, there has been a, a persistent effort to peddle Iran's you know point of view and and issues and ideas that totally enhance the regime's advantage in Washington successfully for many years. And, and I think uh, that that has made it even more difficult for Washington to see that some of these ideas, in fact, came from Tehran and they should have resisted it, or now at least, that you know there is this nationwide movement that perhaps the nation is trying to convey something different. Uh, however, I think to miss this opportunity, it will set the United States back not just with respect to Iranians, but with respect to the region for decades. Because, you know, we still hear, not not necessarily from Iranians, but actually, you know, American intellectuals and liberals, that, you know, Iran was had a democracy in 1953, and we overthrew it. And look, 70 years later, they still hold a grudge against us, and they're still struggling. And, and so... You know, given that 
that backdrop and and the the views that uh, the region has held about the United States and about the idea, you know, about the fundamental notion that the U.S. doesn't care about the people, but only its own interests, to abandon the nation right now and to, you know, sit at the negotiating table with the regime, sign an agreement, or not do everything in our power to strengthen the hands of the activist the democratic movement inside Iran would be to repeat the mistakes that the United States has made in the region to create the sense of hostility that it's been experiencing. And this, I think, is a historic moment that allows America to reintroduce itself as a force for the good. You know, I think, um, again, we need to wrap up, but there's one more thing I want to run by you very briefly. I think you're entirely right intuitively in terms of these parallels between Russia, Ukraine politics and Iran and how kind of guided by Giselle, how we're late on on some of these things. There's one more parallel that I um, keep thinking about right now that is both granular and very broad. And that's the strike movements, the, the striking um, activities in Iran um, right now that... Um, There's a discussion here about whether or how they can be supported, but they remind me very much of the solidarity movement in Poland that had such a domino effect in the region and something that was inconceivable um, for many Americans and Western Europeans just a couple of months before the movement then created, you know, the fall of the Cold War, the Iron Curtain, etc. And it seems to me that this relatively granular thing that we see now in Iran has the potential, and this is kind of the question to you, has the potential to have a similar and incredibly ample domino effect with regards to precisely anti-Americanism in the Middle East, right? Mm -hmm. So that was the, the conclusion to an article I most recently wrote, uh, which is supposed to run. And then my editor scra you know, slashed it out and said, this is too much wishful thinking on your part. You know, how do we know? And I said, okay. That's atrocious. That's atrocious. It may be wishful thinking, but it's, it's what I mean to say. <laughs> right, right, right. What kind of editor is this? Well, well you know, an editor who's, I guess, the, been told that he needs to be realistic. But I think I have, I have a good reason to be wishful, to, to think wishfully in this way, because 1979 proved to do exactly that, that, that the rise of Ayatollah Khomeini, the rise of Islamic fundamentalist ideology in Iran was the reason, or at least the, the main engine uh, for the rise of other Islamic fundamentalist groups and ideologies in the region. And I have every reason to believe that the Iranians are creating the antidote to the poison that they generated in 1979. And if the poison took, why shouldn't the antidote? So I really, truly believe that it can create a seismic political shift in the region. And I think the signs of it are there. Like, You know, you see, there, there was one beautiful footage this morning that was um, kind of uh, circulating on social media of 
of little Afghan girls who were knocking on the door of their school, uh, trying to get in. And then this guy can, comes out and throws a rock at them. But the fact that they are doing that, which is something that they probably wouldn't do, you know, 10 years ago or, you know, under the previous uh, reign of the Taliban is, is because they're watching what their counterparts in Iran are doing. If you edited out the optimism from my writings, my career would come to a crashing conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think with um, this end of uh, unfortunately end of the episode, we have now officially established thanks to Roya Hakakian that Iran and the movements are a fundamental part of the Eastern Front. Thank you, Roya, so much for joining us and enlightening us on these things. Thank you so much. From my friends and me, Yulia Zhoja, thank you for listening to The Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea. The Eastern Front's newsletter is now live and you can subscribe to it. Um, and you can find more episodes and additional content on our a um, website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please get in touch with us on Twitter as per usual using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod. And you can win um, some of our Eastern Front coffee mugs if you engage with us. If you have uh, enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you. And until next time, goodbye.